Uh, in the movie Blues Brothers, uh, Jake and Elwood are on a mission from God. Uh, the Catholic orphanage they were raised in will be shut down unless $5,000 in back taxes is paid. Uh, they reform the old band to raise the money. And Jake tells the band that they're on a mission from God. To cut a long story short, after many adventures, they play their big concert, they earn their money, they pay off the debt just in time. Now, you know, I hate to draw the comparison too closely, but these last two chapters of Acts are a little bit like that. Uh, The Apostle Paul is on his own mission from God. Uh, It's just as exciting as the movie. There's just as much action and suspense. And uh, he seems to make just as many enemies as Jake and Elwood do as he uh, travels around. But despite the struggles, the point that's made again and again through these chapters is that this really is a mission from God. Paul is going exactly where God wants him and doing exactly what God wants him to do. He's travelling to Rome, telling people about Jesus. It wasn't happening the way Paul hoped that it would. He was going as a prisoner... It's taken a lot longer than he'd hoped. And now, despite his advice, they've sailed right into the teeth of a life-threatening storm. But look at the message God sends Paul in the middle of this huge gale. Chapter 27, verse 24, he says to Paul, Do not be afraid. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Now, that's really the point of these chapters. Whatever happens on the journey, we know where it'll finish because God's in control. His purposes will come about, even though it doesn't look like it. Now that's a lesson for us. Even though our lives are never going to be as as, uh, interesting and as exciting as Paul's, almost certainly. And even though it doesn't seem as if we're on a mission from God, even though we mostly will not receive messages from heaven like Paul did, In our lives, God is always at work. He's always in control in the bad things as well as the good things. God's in control when the house renovations take a year longer than planned. God's in control when your best friend won't talk to you. God's in control when that long-for pregnancy doesn't happen. God's in control when your work is dull, you're failing your assignments, You're lonely, your roof leaks, your back aches and your investments lose value. Because in all of those situations, God wants you to trust him more, to grow more like Jesus and he wants you uh, and he wants to bring glory to himself. Well, that's us, but let's go back to Paul. Uh, I mentioned how uh, things have ended in a storm, but they, uh, they don't start out that way. They start out all right. Uh, We pick up the story at the start of chapter 27. Uh, Paul, Luke and Aristarchus, they begin their journey. Uh, You can tell that Luke is there because of that small word, we, in verse 2. So this guy who's writing the story, he's there for the whole trip. We sometimes forget that. They're on a ship bound for Myra. They're supervised by a centurion called Julius, who's level-headed and compassionate. He shows that numerous times. Uh, In verse 6, it's onto another ship from Egypt that's headed for Italy. They make it as far as the island of Crete to a place called Fair Havens. It's tough going, the winds are against them, the sailing season is nearly over. Uh, There was an old Roman saying, sailing in September is stupid, 
sailing in November is suicide. But have a look at the note in verse 9. Sailing is getting dangerous because it's after the fast, the Day of Atonement, it's the first week of October. And so that makes this trip somewhere between stupid and suicide. So Paul warns them, verse 10, this is going to be disastrous. Let's just stay here in fair havens. But they don't listen. They press on. They get a nice gentle breeze uh, breeze blowing in the right direction, so they head off thinking they can make it a bit further along the coast to a better harbour to winter in, to Phoenix. But verse 14, a hurricane wind uh, uh, hits them. It's called the northeaster, which in the southern hemisphere is actually a lovely breeze, but in the northern hemisphere at the wrong season, it's disastrous. Uh, It sweeps down across Crete and it blows them right out to sea, of course. Uh, Verse 16, they're hardly able to tie down the lifeboat. They hold the ship together by lashing it with ropes. They drop the sea anchors so that uh, the boat won't run aground. Verse 18, they throw overboard anything to lighten the load. Uh, The storm goes on for day after day after day until they've given up all hope of getting out alive. Verse 20, uh, except of course for Paul. In spite of the fact that he's a prisoner, Paul is the one cheering up everyone else. Verse 22, he says, But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So... Keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told you, just as he told me. Now, that's just repeating, uh, in essence, what Jesus had actually said to Paul as well back in chapter 23. He was in prison in Jerusalem. And Jesus appeared to him and said to uh, to Paul, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. And because God is in control, that's what will happen. Verse 27, the 14th night being driven across the Adriatic Sea, the sailors sense they're approaching land. I'm guessing they hear waves breaking. They realise they're going to be smashed on the rocks. The sailors try to sneak away in the lifeboat without the passengers noticing. Paul sees what they're doing. He has the soldiers stop the sailors. Without the sailors, they'll all drown. When daylight finally comes in verse 39, they see a sandy beach and they decide to run the boat aground on that. But the bow jams in a sandbar offshore. And verse 41, the boat's beginning to be smashed to pieces. The danger's not over yet, though. The soldiers draw their swords because the policy is you kill prisoners in a situation like this. But the centurion wants to spare Paul's life, so he saves the lives of the passengers. And the order comes, let's abandon ship, and everyone makes it safely to shore. But if you think that's where the safety begins, then uh, you better think again. As chapter 28 begins, uh, the local Maltese build a fire, they give them a warm welcome, everyone's wet and cold. Paul, being the helpful sort of guy he is, gathers a pile of firewood, And as he drops it into the flames, a poisonous snake latches onto his hand. There is danger everywhere. 
and it's wonderfully alliterative. There are super storms and slippery sailors and shattering shipwrecks. There are soldiers with slicing swords. There's swimming through the surf and there are slippery snakes. Uh, the Maltese who are watching decide that Paul must be guilty. Faith has finally caught up with him. He's escaped the sea, but now justice has claimed him. They expect him to, to die. But Paul just shakes the snake off. Nothing happens because the point is Paul is on a mission from God. He will make it to Rome. Now, there's the first lesson we can learn from this sea story, the first of three lessons about God's providence, his care and control for his world. God wants Paul in Rome to proclaim Jesus to the highest authorities and so he will make it. His will is always done. Jewish zealots won't stop him. Roman imprisonment won't stop him. Or rigged trials or corrupt politicians looking for bribes. God wants Paul in Rome so seasons and storms and shipwrecks can't stop him. Uh, neither can sailors or soldiers or swords or snakes. Uh, question 11 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. What is God's providence? Uh, God's providence is his completely holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing every creature and every action. In other words, God is the boss. God is the boss. If someone says, what does it mean for us to be reformed? Well, it's basically those four words. God's the boss. That's what we celebrate as reformed Christians. God is the boss. Everything he plans comes to pass. Now, that's comforting, but it's also slightly scary, I think, if we're honest. We feel safe to know that we're in the middle of God's purposes, but we're also if we're honest, a little fearful because, well, they're not our purposes. We're not in control of things. We're not the ones sitting in the driver's seat. But that's what learning to trust God is all about. That's what living as a Christian is about, isn't it? And so Paul finally arrives in Rome. That's verse 14. Just where God wants him. It's three years since he first arrived in Jerusalem back in chapter 21. They put Paul in a house. There's a soldier to guard him, verse 16. Paul knew he'd make it. We did as well because we've been let in on that secret early. We've, get, we've heard the messages from God. But it doesn't normally work like that, does it? In everyday situations, we don't get that message from God about how things will turn out. In our lives, tough times happen. Perhaps it's sickness or unemployment or persecution for being a Christian. Perhaps it's rebellious children or a marriage breakdown or financial disaster. The storms of life toss you around and you wonder where God is and what he's doing. But somehow you make it through. You still may not know why God has caused things to turn out the way they do. But I don't know about you, but isn't it interesting, often it's as you look back, uh, perhaps months back or years back, that you begin to see a little of that message, a, a little of that 
uh, insight into what God's plans were. His care, his love, his guidance, his purposes. Perhaps you can see how you've grown as a result, how you've learned to trust him more. Or maybe you've seen how others have been encouraged. Or maybe how you've seen that what seemed to be a bad situation actually turned out uh, for good in a way that you didn't think it would. Now that's the perspective we get to see here as we follow Paul's travels. God's purposes are always going to come to pass however bad things might appear at the time. How can we know for sure? Well, we can know because uh, we can know uh, the same way that Paul was sure. Perhaps the best known verse that shows God's providence is Romans 8.28. Paul wrote the book of Romans on his way to Jerusalem before his arrest. It was an arrest that he knew was coming, even back then. And here's what he says about God's providence. We know, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. How does Paul know? How can he be so sure? Well, listen to his reason. A few verses further on in verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with his son, graciously give us all things? Do you follow Paul's logic? When you're about to drown in the storms of life, when you start to doubt that God actually cares for you, Look to the cross. Remember what Jesus has done. Remember what God has offered for you. If God has given you his son, of course he will work everything else in your life for good. He who did not withhold his own son will give you all good things. So there's the first lesson we can learn, providence. The second lesson uh, is about the path we're called to follow. The path we're called to follow. Paul's arrived in Rome uh, just the way God had planned, but he's arrived as a prisoner with the threat of death hanging over his head, uh, with his ankles chained. He's housebound with a guard looking over his shoulder. What is God thinking? What sort of a path is this uh, that Christians follow? Well, Jesus warned us that we would follow paths just like this. Uh, It was the path Jesus himself walked. And so he says his followers will also walk that path as well. John 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. That's how things turned out for Jesus. That's how things turned out for Paul. So we shouldn't be surprised if things are tough for us as well. The reality is we don't fit into this world, says Jesus. Why do we expect that we will? People won't understand you. They'll laugh behind your back. 
and conversations will stop when you walk into the room and everyone is invited out to work, uh, drinks after work except for you. Or they're constantly looking at you, waiting for you to trip up and stumble so they can call you a hypocrite. Or they snigger at you as a fanatic, a bigot. Jesus doesn't promise that life as a Christian will be easy, but he does promise us trials. But persevere, Jesus has chosen you. That's why it's tough. So there's a second lesson we can learn from Paul. The path of a follower of Jesus will be tough. The third lesson we can learn is to do with the big picture. Uh, as we look at how these chapters, these at the end of Acts, fit into the whole book of Acts. The big picture of Acts is about how God uses Paul as well as others to, to further his gospel, to take it to the world. How he providentially uses Paul's path as a prisoner to do it. So have a think about the big picture. Acts began with Jesus commissioning the disciples. Acts 1.8, sort of our key verse in the book of Acts said, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of Acts shows how those steps are carried out, that command is carried out. Chapters 1 to 7 is about Jerusalem. Chapter 8 is Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 9 to 28 is about how the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. And it finishes with Paul in Rome, the centre of the Gentile world. Yes, he's still in chains. And yes, he'll be stuck in that house for another two years. But he does get to preach unhindered to both Jews and Gentiles. The very last verses of Acts say this. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's ironic, isn't it? Here's Paul, the chained messenger, but his message is unchained. The gospel will and does go out. God actually uses Paul's chains to advance the gospel. There's the big picture. It's unlikely Paul would have got to preach to Caesar himself unless he was a prisoner, or King Agrippa, or countless Roman soldiers who guarded him. None of those things would have happened if he'd been free. And even though it must have been frustrating for Paul, those four years in prison were not wasted. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea, two years in Rome. Now it's thought that he wrote the books of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians during those years. They're often called the prison letters. Now these are letters that are rich in the doctrine of the lordship of Christ, how Jesus is king, whatever our circumstances. And Jesus demands our obedience and our service. They're letters that are rich with the perspective of someone who has had to wrestle with handing over control to Jesus. Someone who's had four years of thinking time to learn patience and obedience. Four years to think about God's providence. 
here's some examples of the type of thinking that perhaps Paul uh, was connecting with this imprisonment. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. I've learned to be content. <laughs> That's maybe two years of prison has taught him that lesson. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is uh, to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Well, let's pick another letter. What about Colossians? Uh, Colossians 1.24. This paragraph sums up everything Paul is learning about himself and his mission and his sufferings and the gospel and his audience. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul's saying, I rejoice in suffering for you guys. I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God's chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. That's the lesson Paul's learnt, to rejoice in his afflictions. The gospel matters more than the afflictions he's enduring. The church matters more than his afflictions. Wherever God puts you at the moment, however big your storms, however tight your chains, it's the riches of Christ that matter more. The goal of presenting people perfect in Christ is more important than your personal comfort, your success, your achievement, your satisfaction. Now there's the big picture that Acts paints for us. That's the big picture for our life as well. May not seem it, but we are on a mission from God. A mission that's not that much different from Paul. It's a mission to present Jesus to whoever happens to be in front of us. So may our declaration be the same as Paul's. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, we labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you mostly, however, for the example of Jesus. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you work all things for good. Help us to trust you, especially when life and its situations are difficult. Help us to keep before us your priorities of the gospel going out to all people and all people being built up in him. Might that be what motivates us and might that be our priority. And we pray this for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.